This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Welcome to Nothing Nothing Happens Happens in a a Small Town. town. (laughs) Well, we are just giggling because I had a major flub in the initial first take of the episode. Well, we also had a return of the sound gremlins. Yeah. It was. Thankfully, that was a quick figure out. Yeah, that was the software. Yeah. It's... (laughs) We're, we're still navigating a little bit, but overall, we, I think we have it kind of down, right. at least for the oh, most yeah. part. It's just, so. there's just always something. Oh, yeah. It's like the, the saying goes, to mess things up is human. To really foul things up yeah. requires a computer. Oh, yeah. Anyhow. So we have been off um, for an additional week. Um, I was super sick. Uh I decided to move. Yes. So, yeah, (laughs) my husband and I got our house ready for sale in two weeks because we're crazy. (laughs) Um, Essentially, do not try this at home, friends. If you're in your 50s or soon to be, moving yourself seriously sucks. But... It's yeah. a good time to put a house on the market. Oh, and then I apologize. I apparently <laughs> did not have my phone on mute. Whereas so. I did, and I'm probably going to be getting texts here in a little bit from my uh, realtor. So <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. My husband can field those today. Oh, um, boy. And we also had some stuff go on in our personal lives. Yes. Um, Melissa's uh, sister had a lot of just serious tragedy befall her yeah. sh- recently. So my sister, Casey, um, a lot of listeners who knew her, um, she, she's had a tough life. And unfortunately, her husband died in a car accident and then four days later the house she was living in with her in-laws burned down Um, it's just i mean and you could i don't know how it'll be treated his death because it was long covid symptoms that caused his death actually yeah Yeah. oof which is just horrible and they had a number of small children and melissa's mom was there visiting People in the house all survived. Yes. But they barely got out with only what they were wearing, essentially. And Casey's hair was singed. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It was like four in the morning, somewhere around there, that the fire took place. Thankfully, everybody made it out safely. But it, it, uh, their whole house basically is trashed um, vehicles, vehicles in the driveway three vehicles in the driveway gone <laughs> gone you couldn't even tell there was a garage once there it was no. just i mean it was gone i saw the pictures and i was like yeah. wow insane and i mean i can't even imagine losing your husband losing your son and then having your house burned down i mean crazy it, that's just um the level of just i, I 
yeah, that's on the list of things I hope never befall anyone, mm-hmm. let alone somebody I know. And I'm so grateful your mom was fine. Yes. I mean, she lost everything she had with her. Right. But thankfully, things can be replaced. Yes. Yes. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm so glad that everybody got out of there safe. You know, but it, it's a lot of loss in a very short period of time. And um, so I'm going to mention there is a GoFundMe. Um, it is under Kelly Morellas, uh, K-E-L-L-I-M-I-R-E-L-E-Z. And I... We'll put it up on the Facebook yeah. page and all that. Yeah. So, um, but any help to her her family there is greatly appreciated right now um and we do thank everybody who has already donated yeah so appreciated um and then unfortunately there's been some tragedy more on tara's side i mean i kind of i knew of him i i remember him but i didn't know him and this is one of those so it's it's weird that i get it get choked up um bill jordan was just that nice guy he was an all-around star mm-hmm. um i can't think of i mean again i do have what 30 years back to think here but i mean i did not enjoy all of my time in my hometown school um i'd gotten bullied when i was younger in my high school years things were better but um and then i was for an exchange and just you know i was more comfortable in my skin Mm -hmm. so I let things slide off my back better then but I can't actually think of anything negative with regard to Billy Jordan he was just one of those nice guys that he lit up a room he had an an infectious smile he was uh, I wouldn't say he was actually our class clown because I think Jason took that one (laughs) but um, in any type of situation when there was dancing he was in the middle of dance floor he was one of the few black people in my small town um hometown so i know uh the class of 93 uh we had uh on the facebook page we went back and forth and discussed and a group of us put together um a nice amount of funds for um we're actually putting a plaque at the school for billy because he still held the 100 yard dash record oh wow and um well, and he was just, he was so much when it came to sports. Oh, and yeah. I do rem- I think that's yeah, how I sports. knew him the most. Everybody knew him. Yeah, everybody yeah. knew him through that because it was like, yeah, he was. He was a star across mm-hmm. the board. Basketball, uh, track, just everything. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, you kind of lose touch over time. And I left the hometown. And he actually was a salesperson for Xerox. I, a couple years ago, we reconnected on Facebook. And shortly after we reconnected, or it seems like it was shortly after, uh, time is kind of weird as you get older. It could have been a year <laughs> or so later. Um, I mean, he had the corner office mm-hmm. at, overlooking Michigan Avenue. It was so cool. He was really, he was one of those people that not only was he successful in life, he was infectious and he lifted other people up and just just really nice and he had a a young daughter and I know um a lot of us who checked in and chatted with him on Facebook just we really enjoyed his time and he had a very large family um and we're all just heartbroken because he died of something that you would think of as an older person's issue he had a heart attack um Mm -hmm. at 47 so all my love to the family. Um, there is a memorial fund 
being held by Ruck's Funeral Home in Kewanee, Illinois, the William Jordan Memorial Fund. I will see if I can find an actual, I mean, I'm sure if Ruck's Funeral Home has a, uh, a site, but I was looking through all of the the stuff for celebrating his life and I can't find a specific site. So, um, anything can give his daughter was just beautiful and the love of his life and his family is grieving terribly. Mm-hmm. And I just, it's one of those, um, a beautiful human being. Uh, we chatted back and forth a number of times about food because <laughs> what do you do when you're an older person? You're like, Oh yeah, I get the Blackstone griddle and yeah, the, air fryer all sorts of dumb stuff but it was nice to get back in touch with him and it just it really touched my heart and I hope that uh his family as well yeah um so uh for today's episode this is actually um was submitted by Trisha um I don't know if you remember her Trisha Ray um she was a friend of mine in I remember Trisha Coulter and Patricia Ray. Yeah, she was Sorry, um, Trisha. <laughs> yeah. But we appreciate the um suggestion. And, Excellent. Awesome. Yeah. And uh so today we are talking we are going to Watunga, Oklahoma. And Oklahoma. The population is two thousand eight hundred and eighty one people. That definitely goes for small town, though I'm sure they called themselves a city too. Yes. <laughs> I'm just stuck on this. <laughs> I was actually talking with some co- folks at work about that. And depending on the country and depending on the language, there it's like very specific when you're talking about sizes of village versus you know, yeah. principality yeah. versus, yeah. It still just blows my mind. <laughs> City. So, uh, Roberta, or Bobby Ownby, was born on April 6, 1954, in Wichita, Kansas. She graduated from Woodward High School in 1972. She married Terry Daniel on February 9, 1985. The couple had a blended family, with Bobby having a daughter from a previous marriage and Terry having two children from a previous relationship. They shared a love of rodeo. The the couple moved to Watunga in 1986. January 2nd, 1988. um, That particular night had been brutally cold. The roads in the town, ice and snow covered. The Daniels owned a jewelry store on Watunga's Main Street. Terry Daniel claims he was working late in his Watunga jewelry store when a friend called to say that his wife wasn't answering the phone. He rushed home around 11 p.m. She was at the base of our stairs and she had a fillet knife protruding from her stomach and just a massive pool of blood around her head, Daniel recalled. I can't describe those feelings. Um, Bobby's skull had been crushed. Her throat slit and a hunting knife plunged into her left side. The knife was later determined to belong to her husband. The window near the back door had been broken and was the only sign of forced entry into the home. Some jewelry was stolen, but was apparently all belonging to the victim. That's awful. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. When uh, emergency technicians arrived at the The front door was open. A window next to the door was broken. A coffee table and a vase were overturned. A purse with bills sticking out of it was on the kitchen counter and a knife drawer was open. Roberta had been beaten, stabbed. 
her skull crushed and her throat slashed. A vacuum cleaner was at her feet and the hose was wrapped around her leg. A firewood log with glass embedded was by her head. She was 33 years old at the time. That's a lot of overkill there. Yeah. Yeah. The initial theory was that a robbery had occurred within the Daniel household with the robber surprising Bobby and resulting in her death. However, the evidence for a robbery doesn't quite hold water. Mel Het, a criminologist for the OSBI, testified in 1994 that the front door lock could not be reached through the broken window. Also, there were no hairs, blood, or fibers to just to suggest anyone entered through the window. Only point in the house where there was evidence of a forced entry. Um, Yeah, so the window was the only thing that was. Right, right. We can can read our own notes. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, it's, hey. Well, I mean, and and if you don't know this, the OSBI, that would be the state of Oklahoma's uh, version of the FBI. Yeah. Because they're a local versus the... If anybody's watched any of these shows where they've got the local versus the national FBI. So, Mr. Hett testified, It is my opinion that no one has ever been through that window, meaning he thought the scene was staged to look like someone had broken the window and either entered there or reached through and unlocked the door when, in fact, he believed no one had done either. It was simply meant to look like that. Um, Hett and state medical examiner Dr. Fred Jordan said they agree that hairs were found on the victim's hands. Um, Jordan testified that he sent the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, OSBI, eight hairs on her left hand, um, and he said he only received three. Hett said the hairs he received belonged to the victim's daughter, Brooke Shepard, and animals, probably cats. There's Also the issue of the medical examiner's findings. It appears that Bobby had been laying on her side for 15 to 30 minutes before she was turned on her back. The knife that was found in her side was also determined to be plunged into after she was already deceased. Terry Daniels' blood was never identified at the scene. There was testimony that with the severity of the victim's injuries, blood would have gotten on to her killer. No bloody clothes thought to be the killers were ever found. The fact that Bobby's body had been turned proved that the killer was in the house for some time. If this was a robbery, why weren't more items taken from the house, especially the purse on cash? cash. I I mean, mean, it was visible. What the heck, man? (laughs) Not to mention they had other jewelry that wasn't all hers. Yes. Sorry, that just... Mm -hmm. (laughs) About a mile away, investigators recovered a knitting bag with jewelry (coughs) taken from the home, including Roberta Daniels' wedding ring. So that's another thing. Why would somebody throw it away if it was... And they took her ring off of her hand Mm -hmm. rather than... And most people, I think, would be grossed out by that. Yeah. But hey, what do I know? Some of the items were still tagged from the jewelry store. The Blaine County Sheriff's Office called in the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation to help investigate. Daniel says the OSBI agent focused on him as the suspect to, de- to the detriment of other evidence. Well, what is it, how does the saying go? It's always the husband. Uh-huh. It's always the husband. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
One article stated that the jewelry was junk jewelry. Another stated that the jewelry taken was worth more than $50,000. For certain, Bobby's wedding rings were in the bag. If this was a robbery, why would the killer have thrown away the bag? Uh At the time of Bobby's death, there was a $500,000 life insurance policy that had been taken out on her only a few months earlier, which listed Terry as the first beneficiary. Uh By the time he was able to collect on the insurance money in December of 88, with interest it had grown to about $1 million. The couple didn't have children together, but Terry and Daniel had two from a previous marriage, and Roberta had left behind a daughter. The three children are secondary beneficiaries on the life insurance policy. This wasn't the first time Terry had taken out a life insurance policy on her, though. In the summer before the victim's death, Daniel purchased $500,000 life insurance policies for himself and for Bobby. David Lee, or the LI agent, said that he sold Daniel a... $100,000 life insurance policy in 1987 after about a year or said that the policy was dropped because the defendant failed to make monthly payments. Locals say that the Daniels were dealing with a business, uh, a decline decline. in the business at the time of the murder. Uh The business had been going downhill by then, said Howard Hurst, who has owned an insurance company in downtown Watonga for 21 years. The sad thing is, is that nobody really had a chance to know her. She wasn't from around here. Daniel's financial problems apparently started with trouble in the family's jewelry uh, business in Woodward. The defendant expected to inherit the 100-year-old business where he worked alongside his parents for years, but things changed. John Floyd Daniel Jr., the defendant's father, testified about the turmoil in the business once the defendant's new wife, Roberta, uh, started working in his Woodward store. Bobby Daniel was fired because of a way she treated the customer in front of him and his wife. Um, After that, he said he decided against giving Terry the business. In fact, Terry and Bobby bought another jewelry store in Watonga and moved. Terry had tried to borrow $100,000 from friends just weeks before the murder. Uh There were around 22 other suspects in the case, all of whom were cleared except for Terry. One of the suspects, a friend of the Daniels, Donald Wayne Robinett? Robinette, was even accused of having an affair with Bobby. Terry still claims to this day that he is the real killer in the case. There was no evidence of said affair, and the family friend denied doing such a thing. He was cleared of the murder as well. However, there was the issue of Bobby apparently telling a close friend a couple weeks before her death that she was afraid for her life. She testified to this in court. Why was she afraid? She wouldn't say, but Bobby did state that she was happy with the state of her marriage. Campbell testified that Daniel said that she was scared for the first time in her life. Um, She said, I just can't talk to anyone. I can't even talk to my mother. Campbell, a former Watanga restaurant owner, said she questioned the victim about her marriage. She said she was happier than she had ever been. Sharon Cunningham, the defendant's aunt, said that the victim told her about animals. Um, So apparently her children's pet rabbits were killed just like the butchered animals in the 1987 movie Fatal 
attraction and that she was concerned about living in the house the last part of 1987. Wow, somebody took that movie and ran with it. Didn't they? <laughs> yeah, because that's the year it came out, yeah. 1987. Yeah. Um, David Sauls, an investigator, stated that Daniel told a different story about the rabbits. One was killed by his son or a friend of his son with a BB gun. The remainder of the rabbits, rabbits were killed by a dog. Oh, not very good uh, animal keepers if that happened. Right. Tatum Nitzel, uh, this is Terry Daniels' daughter from a previous marriage, testified that one night, about two months before the sling, she and her stepmother were home alone when someone tried to get into the back door. They were wiggling the, de- the door handle. Uh, she opened the door and slammed it on a hand, and that's what she saw. Um, wow. Yeah. So I don't know if, I don't know. That's, that's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Very so that weird. happened before, and then, of course, you know, the daughter told her to call her mm-hmm. dad to come home. Um, hmm. The funeral for Bobby Lynn Daniel uh, was held on January 7th, 1988 at a Watonga Christian Church with the Reverend William Park and also Reverend Alan Seibert. Seibel? Seibel. Mm. Officiating. Another service was held at 1 p.m., that Friday at First Christian Church in Woodward with Reverend Melvin Rittenhouse officiating. Uh, she was buried in Ombi Cemetery at Buffalo. I don't know what that means. Um, directed by Wilkinson Mortuary. Of Watonga, uh, again. Yeah. Um, so that's... Well, yeah. So that was uh, her... Her funeral, uh, her su- the survivors included her husband, two daughters, Brooke Shepard and Tatum Daniel. I think that was his daughters. One yeah. was his daughter and one was her daughter. And then the son, Trevor Daniel, was um, his son. Sorry, yeah. I'm getting it all confused yeah, I now. Know. I know. That's all right. We'll, um, we'll sort this out in a second. <laughs> <laughs> I know that Brooke was her daughter. Right. I do remember that. And then um, in... 429 of 1994 terry files for a marriage license with deborah lee todd in oklahoma county so this is uh how many years after 88 right yeah so quite a few years after yeah it's like six years yeah and And then um the bank filed for disclosure for closure on the uh, business business just a couple months later Mm -hmm. Hmm. Mm mm-hmm Alrighty then. So we got some facts on Watonga, Oklahoma. <laughs> All right. It's a city in Blaine County, Oklahoma, 70 miles northwest of Oklahoma City. The population was over 5,000 in the 2010 census. It was the county seat of Blaine County, or it still is, sorry. Was, is, blah, I can do words. As the county seat, it is located at the intersection of State Highways 8 and 33 and U.S. Highway 270. It is located on former Cheyenne and Arapaho Indian Reservation lands that were allotted to individual tribal members and the excess opened to white settlers in a land run on April 19, 1892. Watonga is named after Arapaho Chief Watonga, whose name means Black Coyote. 
<laughs> the town began as a tent city in April 19th, uh, 1892. A post office opened in Watonga during the same year. However, the first railroad line through Watonga wasn't built until 1901-1902 time frame, when the Enid and Anadarko Railway, later the Chicago-Rock Island Pacific Railway, constructed a 60-mile rail line from Guthrie. The city hosts an annual Watonga Cheese Festival in October. Ooh. I'm there for the cheese. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> how'd that one commercial go? I didn't leave him cookies, Daddy. I, I left, left him, him cheese. <laughs> Anyhow, that may stick in my mind because I absolutely adore cheese. Anyhow, <laughs> the festival was formed in 1976 by the Watonga Chamber of Commerce because the town had only one had the only cheese factory in Oklahoma at the time. Founded in 1940 in Watonga, Oklahoma, the Watonga Cheese Factory had made a name for itself by producing high-quality cheddar cheese by hand. The fe- festival has continued after, even after the closing of the factory in 2007. Watonga's economy has largely been based on agriculture since statehood. In the early days, local farmers primarily were producers of wheat. The dairy industry industry grew in western Oklahoma and led to the opening of the Watonga Cheese Factory. Um, and it was one of the state's five active dairy product plants in 2004. Um, so founded in 1940 in Watonga, Oklahoma, that cheese factory made a name for itself. As I said before, Casey and Brandy Cohen purchased the factory in 2002 and rebuilt the company, which was having difficulties after investors took over in the late nineties and abandoned the original talk. Watonga cheese recipe and processes. After buying the factory, Casey spent several months learning Watonga cheese's signature recipe and processes under the direction of its original cheesemaker. Brandy and Casey operated the factory from their home in Balco, Oklahoma, and from a home in Watonga. But in 2007, Tropical Storm Aaron brought 80 mile an hour winds and 9 to 11 inches of rain to Watonga. It tore off the factory's roof and twisted the building's foundation and cinder block walls. The insurance company condemned the building along with its inventory of 7,000 pounds of cheese. That's a lot of cheese. That's a lot of cheese that was not eatable, not edible. I can do words. But the cheese factory lives. As the Coens were trying to decide whether to rebuild the Watonga Cheese Factory near its original site or relocate, Perrytown Community Development Corporation lured the couple with business incentives, both for reopening in Perryton, Texas, and for employing people in the area. The Coens broke down on ground on the new factory in November of 2009, and the Watonga Cheese Factory opened on September 11th in 2010, next to the Chamber of Commerce building on Main Street. With the move, the Coens were able to purchase the milk for the cheese from Cohen Dairy, Casey's parents, 130 cow dairy in Balco. Casey and Brandy brought it in original equipment from the Watonga factory, and they continue to follow the company's traditional recipe, including hand processing the cheese. In addition to producing all natural cheese at the new location, the factory has a retail store where you can buy Watonga mild cheddar, sharp cheddar, bacon cheddar, cheddar pepper, and onion cheddar cheeses. Mmm, bacon cheddar. (laughs) They also sell cheese curds, the freshest part of the cheese before the whey is processed out, along with approximately 50 different kinds of other manufacturers' cheeses. 
Love's travel stops and country stores began with a single leased gas station in Watonga in the mid-1960s. Love's is now in 41 states and is approaching 500 travel centers, employs 25,000 nationwide. I know those places because they typically also have dump stations. So Hmm. if you are taking a travel trailer around, like somebody you may know. Anyhow. Or a fifth wheel now. Uh, The city hosted the Diamondback Correctional Facility owned by the Corrections Corporation of America from 1998, and the prison grew to become the town's largest employer. But the prison, housing Arizona inmates, experienced a riot in 2004. That's not good for business. And the contract to utilize the facility was not renewed, resulting in the prison closing in May 2010. This left 300 prison workers jobless or transferred elsewhere. The prison was still vacant as of March 2017. And you want to know the final death for a town economy? The Walmart closed in 2016. That is just not a good sign. No. So back to the case. Uh, A grand jury would eventually indict Daniel on a first degree murder charge for the death of Bobby. Defense, Defense attorney Irvin Box worked to show the jurors that officers botched the investigation. Irvin Box, along with attorneys Stephen Box and Tara Little, say they discovered 78 areas where officers failed in their investigation. Defense attorney Irvin Box even pointed the finger at Donald Wayne Robinet a friend of Daniel as the killer. Robinet was at the Daniel's home on the day of the slaying to retrieve videotapes. Box said Robinet went into the house and talked to the defendant, Terry, on the telephone. Robinet's fingerprints were found on the telephone in the kitchen. Robinet, now of Midland, Texas, denied that he and the victim were involved romantically. Box accused Robinet of changing his story and blamed investigators for not testing blood samples and investigating Robinet's muddy boot prints and pickup tracks. David Sauls, the o- Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation's case agent, said Robinet was elimin- eliminated partly as a suspect because Terry Daniel first said he saw his wife alive after Robinet's visit. In 1995, the case is set to the side due to the uh, Oklahoma City bomber trial. Yeah, that was kind of a big deal. It was. Um, I remember when that happened. So it kind of ended up being delayed a few times. It was um, delayed in 1996, motion... uh, to dismiss indictment due to insufficient evidence. Um, Then in 2000, there was a motion to dismiss with prejudice for lack of speedy trial. In October of 2000, there was a motion to dismiss with prejudice for failure to compel with discovery and a brief in support. And then um, in... Later in October. Later in October, yeah. um, Judge Jack R. Parr, uh, found not guilty, cash bond exonerated, returned persons posting bond. I'm not sure what that means. But in any case, it was all <laughs> lots and lots and lots of delays to this. So remember, she was murdered in 1988. So and 12 then, years and some change later. Yeah. In um, October 25th of 2000, a jury found Daniel not guilty of the charge. 
But the case, the nightmare, was far from over. It'll never be done, Daniel said. The repercussions from it are still a daily thing. The case cost Daniel his jewelry business and his livelihood. It cost him friends. He moved from jewelry sales into manufacturing in order to make ends meet. He says people are still afraid to come into his shop because of the past. But beyond that, he says he's still being victimized by the state. You see, the evidence recovered from the crime disappeared. That bag of jewelry is missing. Today, it would be worth $50,000. And after the trial, Daniel wrote a letter to the OSBI in which he says he was told that the agency was holding the jewelry as part of an ongoing investigation into him. Whether there was an un going investigation or not is not known. The OSBI sent him a short letter saying that they no longer had the jewelry because it had been sent to the Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office. Fox 25 asked the same question of the OSBI. Uh, they asked to see a chain of custody forms, which are typical in law enforcement, to see who handled that expensive jewelry. The agency denied their request, stating saying that state law does not require the OSBI to make such records public. The Daniel case was complicated because it went through several prosecutors. Daniel said some refused the case because of lack of evidence. Eventually it did land in the Oklahoma City, but or Oklahoma County, but Oklahoma County was in, unable to handle the case due to the Oklahoma City bombing and resulting trials. Ultimately, a Grady County prosecutor tried and lost the case. The Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office did check its archives at Fox 25's request. The office said that the evidence from the Daniel case was ordered and turned over to the Grady County DA's office. The prosecutor who handled the case has since passed away and Grady County cannot find the evidence. However, because we can't see the chain of custody forms, it's not possible to know what happened to the jewelry. Daniel said it was never brought up at his trial and he hasn't seen it since the night the OSBI took it. The OSBI says its case closed, and even though there was never been a conviction for the murder, it was asked to investigate. The agency says it investigated every lead in the case, but considering that in 1988, DNA testing was in its infancy, it's possible that the evidence from the crime was somewhere accessible, and it could hold clues as to who Daniel says is the real murderer. The OSBI turned down Fox 25's request for interviews about this case, and if anybody out there has information pertaining to the murder of Bobby Lynn Daniel, please contact the Blaine County Sheriff's Department at 580-623-5111. Yeah, so of course, what did I look into? Missing evidence. If you search how long should evidence be maintained, it, the result is evidence must be managed and administered over its entire lifetime. So mm. it's supposed to be somewhere. Yeah. I mean, the only time you can do destruction of evidence is like um, weapons or um, like drugs and stuff like that. Those can be melted down and what have you. But that's after the trial has concluded. This... So it possibly was stolen yeah. or misplaced. Or it could or... be, I mean, that one prosecutor has passed away. Maybe his heirs have it. That's or they don't true. even know. It could be like in a rafters of a garage. Oh, Who yeah. Knows? It's in a box. 
hidden. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. Well, if somebody can find the box of stuff that I misplaced while moving, <laughs> I would really love it. Hot pink box, like this big. And I can't find it. I put the stuff in a hot pink box so I wouldn't lose it. Guess what I lost? The hot pink box. Well, things so, do get lost in well, moves. <laughs> and wasn't it um, just recently I heard that uh, Dorothy's dress from, they found one of the dresses from uh, The Wizard of Oz. Oh, wow. It had been... Um, had just been in a box somewhere. Hmm. Yeah. See, Here we go. Boxes. There's stuff in boxes. Yes. I don't want to open all the boxes in storage. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. Anyhow, the lifetime of a piece of evidence includes a number of key stages from the piece of evidence acquisition to its eventual disposal. So like, um, I, there's just all this stuff. So acquisition can be by like you collect it, for example, at a crime scene, like when they're, you watch like CSI and stuff like that, and they actually pick stuff up from the crime scene, put it in bags, put it away. It could be seizure. There could be, uh, let's say they, um, one of the suspects, you get a suspect's vehicle or something that would be seizure, voluntary deposit. Here's this thing you said you needed. Let's say, oh, we need to have the, all the knives from your knife collection. Here you go. Here's my stuff. Um, so there needs to be a description of these items. They need to be indexed, described, digitizing, for example, f- photographing or scanning information. So you can, so you don't have to lug everything everywhere. Um, and you can just have the results of tests and what have you on them. There's something called duty of care. For example, a document seizure from business, which by definition requires the documents to carry out its business. You can, what you can do is just take copies of them and give back the copies in case you need to have the actual physical pieces to take evidence from, um, provision of copies, um, Analysis, which of course includes information interpretation, for example, the content of the documents. So you read through them, find out if there's maybe some, I don't know, if you've got documents from a business, are they cooking the books? (laughs) Uh, Materials testing, such as the drug type, paper type, ink type, um, environmental context investigation, for example, included matter, uh, animal life, fingerprints, I remember there were cat hairs or something like that Mm -hmm. in there. You assess it, you look for relevance of elements of proofs, presentation, which includes disclosure, for example, pre-trial to defense, which you might actually have to give additional examples of something. Or, you know, like if you took lab tests of something, they get their own labs to do individual testing of things. So there's all different, all these different ways that um, evidence can get moved around and uh, that's why they've got all supposed to have all these chain of custody things. So it's mm-hmm. very odd. I had never actually heard that the FBI or at least the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation doesn't have to provide. Now, mm-hmm. was it just they didn't have to provide it to? I think they didn't the have to provide it to the public. To the that public. was kind of the, what they were stating was you know this is a news outlet yeah. contacting right. them. So they were just asking for a freedom of information right. type thing, and this is free of being able to comply with it which is Mm -hmm. odd that to me sounds like they're covering up they lost things that or they maybe are still investigating someone you know yep sometimes these things go years and they this is unsolved they don't it's a murder there is no uh statute of limitations on murder right 
And then, so that end of life, if you will, for end, uh, for evidence is disposal, which disposal can mean return to owner, which that hasn't happened. <laughs> Destruction, that's where you would destru- uh, destroy things like illicit or redundant or obsolete informa- uh, materials. Uh, illicit would be like drugs, again, guns. Mm. Um, they could also be put up for sale or donation if no owner identifiable material was in there. I guess they give things away or have sales. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I have they. I've heard of that with like automobiles mm-hmm. for sure. Accountability and responsibility. So, at all stages of its life, a piece of evidence must typically be moved in and out of storage and handled by different people. Of course, this places a very strong requirement on the integrity of the chain of custody, and in particular on the personnel involved in the duty of care of the organization responsible. For example, Interpol has published standards to combat corruption. Um, they have this standard for dot. 12-5 refers to a system in states having and maintaining systems of revenue collection, money, and property handling, and for the control and preservation of evidence that ensures that those collecting or handling money, dealing with evidence or handling property, are accountable and that the systems are such as to ter- deter corruption. So... Evidence and property management is typically considered critical to the extent that efficiency or economy of the processes are secondary to the integrity of and the evidence of the property. So it may take you a while to check things in and out, but that doesn't matter. The whole point is keeping the integrity of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Digitizing of evidence is reducing the need to handle the original evidence until it's presented, which is nice. It keeps things nice and clean and tidy. The reduction in the handling of the original evidence lessens the likelihood of deliberate tampering or accidental contamination and reduces chain of custody requirements and overheads, which is nice. Um, and actually, I recently was watching, um, there was a cold case file that some university, I think it was University of Michigan students, they they just got a hold of a bunch of documents. Apparently, one of the professors was working with local law enforcement and just them digitizing everything made it hmm. so that everything was searchable. So they still had all their original documents, but they that they did it as their college like class, it saved so much money. Mm. Because you can think of what it takes to look through. I just went through a whole bunch of boxes of stuff in two weeks, and believe me, I didn't touch the freaking yeah. <laughs> all of it. But trying to read case files, mm-hmm. that would be awesome. Yeah. Anyhow. So how often does police evidence get tampered with or go missing? So that actually is an interesting question. A gentleman named Tim Dees answered it. Um, He's a retired cop and criminal justice professor, Reno Police Department, Reno Municipal Court, blah. He answered that question, um, basically said, in his experience, it happens very, very rarely. And when it does, it's usually because someone who was thought to be trustworthy wasn't. Duh. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sorry, Tim. That one's a little bit of a dub answer, but whatever. Um, Every police evidence property room has safeguards to ensure that evidence isn't tampered with, mislaid, or stolen. Most systems require multiple signatures and other endorsements to transfer an item of evidence from one status to another. The more modern systems track this with locked computer records. So in the 80s, it would have been easier to steal this stuff or have it go missing. But as it went further in time, it would have been harder. Mm -hmm. 
So of course, any system that can be designed can be defeated by the person with enough smarts or access. The most evidence theft or tampering is done when dishonest people are placed into positions of trust. It's always hard to know who you can trust and just as hard to find someone who is truly incorruptible. When these breaches happen, there is usually someone saying, I never thought it could be them. Of course, there is occasionally the situation where people are saying, of course course it was was them. them. (laughs) Why were they entrusted with this stuff? (laughs) But anyhow, so the majority of police have said they've seen evidence go missing, destroyed, or contaminated. Three quarters of police officers say they have seen evidence lost or destroyed as a report revealed negligent forces, the blind leaving the blind. This was from a a British uh, newspaper. So I thought that was interesting. Hmm. It's scary to think that so much can be lost. So um, that was actually, sorry, I I read it a little too close to Tim's answer. This was a different article that I was reading. Um, There's been a big crackdown overseas with regard to um, tampering with evidence because apparently they found some problems. And I think it's just like... It's very similar to some stuff that's happened in our own backyard where it tends to be like one group of bad people and they just kept um, bringing in their own friends Mm. to work for them. So Mm -hmm. anyhow, uh, but that's, I will let that part go. So did you have more on? So I couldn't. Yeah, you yeah, got your comments so from families I really and friends. did have a, a little bit of a hard time finding um, information on this case, um, but I did find comments from fan, uh, friends, friends and, and family. family about Bobby. Yeah, and Melissa loves, I mean, and I get this too, it, your highlight is looking at who is the victim. Yes, I and like to look at who the victim is and tell more about them because to me, I think, I think that's important. Yeah. And I think that gets lost sometimes because mm-hmm. we get so wrapped up in who is the killer mm-hmm. that we forget about the victims. Yes. So Belinda H says, this still breaks my heart. I was very good friends with her. We stayed together, worked at Don's and ran together. The fun and memories will never be forgotten. Then she meets Terry. Everything changed. I talked to Janice a lot after the murder. I hope and pray that the guilty person is put away. She was very beautiful, caring, and so thoughtful. I don't understand why and why so much was covered up. Patty P. says, I went to church with Terry and to high school with Bobby. Terry was a couple years older than me and Bobby and... Me and Bobby and I graduated together. Okay, so she's saying Bobby and her graduated right, together. Right, and Terry was a couple years yeah. older. Terry was a pretty good guy back then, and Bobby was absolutely precious, and she was absolutely beautiful. I remember that. I will always admire her for her love of rodeo. We also sat together in several several classes. This was such a terrible situation. Bobby did not deserve this kind of death. I have heard some very bad things about Terry since our days growing up in Woodward, drugs and other things. I just cannot wrap my head around all of this. It just makes my heart break. Sabra W. Sabra? 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 No, no. Bobby and my mom, Clydeen, Uh were very close friends and neighbors while living in Woodward. Bobby and Brooke were just like family to us because my mom was single raising girls too. Plus, we did, we all did dance together. I am a couple years older than Brooke. 
We have stayed in contact with Brooke throughout all of this. She has had one hell of a life. Her faith remains strong, but I would love for her to have closure. Science has made so many advancements since the time of her death, and even with all the crappy police work, there is something that is being overlooked. I was 11 at the time of her death, and she was like a second mom to us. I have never experienced something such as this before. I hope Brooke gets the closer closure she needs so she can heal and remain strong in her faith. Um, yeah, it this... I, I really wish I could have found more on this case. Yeah, but it's a small, it's a really small town. Yeah, and, and even like I went through my usual sources, old newspapers, that sort of thing. The most information I found was actually on this um, website. It's uh, a candyrose.com. Um, but I, you know, it, even that, it was pretty limited. And it just seemed like... Um, it's just kind of sad. It was like a ni- 1988, and I mean, that was a brutal freaking murder. She yeah. was really... It was overkill in a major yeah. way. So if it wasn't her husband, it would have to be somebody Somebody who had, personal, yeah. It, somebody who knew her. I mean, let's see. How many times... Throat slashed, stabbed a bunch of times, skull crushed. Yeah. That is... And then thrown down the stairs. Yeah. And she, <laughs> like... Wow. I mean, they <laughs> for a robber to do that, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No. And they stayed with her. They stayed with her. They yeah, said they, said they it was stayed what, with her for like half 15 to 30 yeah. minutes. Somewhere so be, Yeah, because she was lying on her side. side and then they moved. moved her to her back. Right. So this person killed her and then moved her as well and then stabbed her again. Yeah, so, went ahead and left the knife in her. Yeah, so That's it awesome. definitely was you know overkill they were this was a very personal killing and um it sounds like she was a really sweet beautiful person and the only negatives we see okay so her it could have been because it's almost always the husband sorry Mm -hmm. sorry hubbies yeah you know that's who we look at first as the spouse and or significant others Mm -hmm. you kind of also wonder what was going on with her in-laws because they claim that they were not going to give their business to their son because of her. her. Right. That's true. And, and it was because of her bad behavior when everybody else is talking about how wonderful she was. Now right. we all have crappy days. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, yeah. Who knows what what really happened there? And, and was Robinette her lover? I don't know. Yeah, hard to say. Yeah. And you do wonder, besides the jewelry, what other evidence is there and mm-hmm. where does it exist? And... Did they have enough? Now, they said that the hairs, they sent eight and only three got arrived. Right. So there's and only so her... much testing you can do before it's yeah. gone. And one was her daughters and three were, or the other Animal, were cats. cat hairs. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and you'd wonder the blood of evidence on her. Because mm-hmm. if somebody's stabbed, a stabber almost always ends up getting themselves mm-hmm. cut. Right. And they never found bloody clothes. So, you know, again, somebody could open a box someday and find some bloody clothes. (laughs) Well, even her stuff, if the the killer bled on her, it would mix in with her DNA. Right. And nowadays, DNA can actually extrapolate them. Right. 
where before so, it was like probably in 88 they were probably just doing blood typing at that point in time yeah and telling a difference between human and animal right <laughs> was about it right yeah so that was uh today's case yeah it's one of those if anybody has any additional information or can help us find stuff because mm-hmm. you know we're pretty good at finding things but sometimes i mean watonga is tiny it is and yeah please feel free to reach out um and and it got usurped by the oklahoma city bombings which you mm-hmm. know that was a big deal so who knows how much information just got dropped right and not passed on yeah so yeah if you have any information that you want to share with us please feel free yeah we're always happy to yes we've actually gotten some uh feedback on a couple episodes yeah well in the future probably talk about them sooner than later but yeah yeah that's pretty cool yeah i'm actually kind of excited to maybe talk to some people so that's kind of cool um (laughs) anyhow thank you for listening to us we really do appreciate it we just want to say thank you to our listeners out there we will try very hard not to have um gaps like this but yeah yeah, the last couple of weeks have been just out of this world different yeah and i mean we yeah we really do try and stay on track it's you know last life weekend happens. i, mean, I was sick. so sick i couldn't talk people i had no voice <laughs> i mean i'm like <laughs> yeah it would never it wouldn't have worked <laughs> yeah and i never fall asleep when i get a massage and i get uh massages every couple of weeks as part of my keeping my horrible back and ankle still in good alignment i literally fell asleep <laughs> so yeah yeah it's it Just was had a lot been going on yeah really tiring lately yeah. but and then yeah and i was very moved by billy's death that that really hit me a lot harder yeah. and i think part of it even though we weren't good we weren't good friends we mm-hmm. just i knew him he knew me he had very close family and very close close friends and paula i hope you're doing well i know how much this has to hurt it just, it really hits hard when it's somebody that just is so full of life, mm-hmm. your age, yeah. and they die of an old person's problem. Yeah. Ooh, talk yeah. about going, man, I know, I know life is fragile and all, but Billy? Yeah. Really? I know. Oh, so, so sad. anyhow, thank you for listening to Nothing Happens in, in a, a Small, small town. town. Where things do happen, and small towns are not the quiet, quaint places you think they are. Yeah, people get really, yeah. really murdered bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so murder is bad on its own, but, but we're talking like, like this overkill viciously again. Murdered. Viciously yeah. murdered. That's a better word for it. Yeah, <laughs> really bad. <laughs> Sorry, we're <laughs> we, this is what happens when best friends meet up and we're still kind of like lack of sleep and yeah. nutty. Yeah. Yep. Yep, yep. maybe. So anyhow, um you can <laughs> also donate if you would like to help us keep doing this, you know, because we do like doing this. At, uh, oh, and by the way, we do have a new Patreon. I ke- I almost forgot to mention. We do. Brian Keeft. Oh, hey, Brian. Thank, Thank you. you. 
Um, so our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash nothing happens in a small town. Instagram profile is nothing happens in a small town. Twitter is nothing happens in a small town at N-H-I-A-S-T. And Facebook is nothing happens in a small town at N-H-I-A-S-T 2021. You can also email us and as you have heard we do tell um our listener you know selections right so nothing happens in a small town at gmail.com yep thank you thank you so much guys bye